Well, I'm so excited to lead us into this Christmas season where we're going to take a closer look at our Savior from the book of Colossians. Because right now, most churches all across the world at this time of year and Easter, regardless of what else they were doing or focused on, it is absolutely right that you stop and you look straight at Jesus to reconsider all over again who he is and what he's done. And there is no better place to do that, to look straight at Jesus, than in the book of Colossians, especially chapter 1. Because here's what's going on. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in a city named Colossae, and he has already heard, he's gotten wind of a problem. Some of them are being led astray, and many of them are in danger of being tempted to move astray to a theology of Gnosticism that begins with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And here's what that was. And it's still around a little bit today. It was a group of people who said, oh, yes, yes, Jesus. Of course, Jesus. But there's so much more that we've got to add to Jesus. And there's this higher level of understanding that we've got to get to regarding angels and dreams and visions. And so Paul, the apostle, picks up his pen and dips it in the inkwell and unleashes some of the highest, deepest, most Christ-exalting verses you can find in all the Bible. Colossians chapter 1 has some of the most Jesus-rich content of anywhere in the Bible. So you follow along as I read Colossians chapter 1. In its entirety. There's going to be a spot we hit where we really go after Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand at that point. So be ready. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God. And the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Which has come to you. As it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. As it is also among you since the day you heard and knew The grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good way, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. And now stand. Because when he gets to that point of saying he's delivered us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He's going to tell us about that son. And these next verses are some of the most highest superlatives you could hear about our savior Jesus. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him And for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Some translations say in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him whether things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet Now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope. Of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What? What is it that's so glorious and rich that has not been understood before? It's this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Say, thank you, Lord. And then... It's understandable why the next thing's the only thing that you would say once we've said, look at Jesus, look at who is he, what he's done. Him we preach, him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every person perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. You may be seated. Christmas is about Jesus. 
And in particular, the doctrine of incarnation. That God took on flesh and became a human being arriving as a baby. But never ceasing to be God. Fully God. Fully God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Watch how Paul drives this home to us. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15, look at how he talks about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, look at me. Don't make a mistake right here. There's a misstep that you could make right here. If you were to say, ah, look, look. See, Jesus is a created being. It says he's the first thing that God the Father created. And if you go down that path, you would be absolutely wrong. Because the people in that day, when Paul penned this letter in AD AD 62, understood exactly what Paul was talking about. Because there was a law in most parts of the world at that time called the law of primogenitor. And this law stated that the firstborn in every family got it all. All the power, all the wealth, all the status, all the standing. And so Paul is saying that Jesus, who took on flesh and came as a baby, was absolutely equal, equal in standing and status and power with God the Father, whom no eye has seen. Jesus is equal to the one who rules and reigns over the universe, for whom the the seraphim cry out day and night, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. But if that's not enough, look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, who's him? In Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus did not bring with him a little bit of God when he came to earth. You don't get a glimpse of God when you look to Jesus. Verse 19 is telling us, folks, there's not a single attribute of God that you can't find in Jesus Christ fully. Fully. And so here's what this means. God. The real God in all his fullness became flesh. Not a hologram, not a ghost, not an apparition. God in flesh that you could see and touch. A God that sweats and bleeds and cries and then dies for us. No other religion gives us a God who gives himself for us. Every other religion is all about how can you hopefully one day, someday, please this unhappy God. Please this God. Get to where he is. Only Christianity, it's distinctly different from every other religion, gives you a God who takes on flesh and stoops and steps into our world and comes for us. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So thank you, Lord. And so here's what I want to do with the time that remains. If this baby that arrived 2,000 years ago is fully God, and you say you believe that, and you claim to be a Christian today, then I want to give you three ways 
that believing this baby is God will radically reorder your life. Here's the first. If you believe that Jesus is God, you'll surrender to him as your final authority for everything in life. Look at what I'm talking about. Look in verse 16 to 18 again. You just, you move your eyes through 16 to 18 that I believe are some of the most Jesus, rich, royal, authority, resplendent, majestic descriptions of Jesus you can find in the Bible. And then it ends with this. That in all things he may have, if you got the New King James say it, the preeminence. Folks, that's a truckload of superlatives that completely blows away the possibility of you sitting there and saying, I believe Jesus lived. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He did some good. No. He's God with all authority and power and dominion and royalty. Because that word preeminence is a word that means a status of distinction that's marked by importance or superiority. And it includes a sense of royalty or dominion as a king. Now that takes your thoughts of baby Jesus in the manger to a whole nother level, right? And it's the final phrase in verse 18 that I think captures it so well. That he... That he in all things may have the preeminence. If you've got the NIV, it says that he, might, that he might in everything have the supremacy. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says that he might come to have first place in everything. So buckle up now. Because there's a question that has to be asked. Right? Are you feeling it? Thought I might go there. If you're here and you say you're a Christian, oh, I believe Jesus is God and I'm a Christian. Does Jesus have supremacy, first place over everything in your life? That's what it means that Jesus is God and supreme. Does Jesus have first place in everything in your life? Is there any view, any view or conviction or idea or behavior or relationship in your life that you're still holding on to? And you say to Jesus, you have no, no authority in my life in that area. See that door? It's shut, Jesus. We don't go there. See, listen, if Jesus was just a guru, teacher, good man, you could get away with that. He wouldn't have the kind of authority over your life that Colossians 1 is talking about. But if he is God and supreme over all things, then there's no limit, no limit to his rights over you. And there's no place... Anywhere in your life for you putting up no trespassing signs. And so I got to ask you, while I've been talking this way, 
What's come to your mind? Something's come into your mind. What is it? What door is it that's shut? Where is that no trespassing sign? Where have you, regardless of how long you say you've been a Christian, still been holding on to something saying, we don't go there, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You don't have authority over that. Not going to submit there. What about your sexuality? It's very personal, isn't it? We have strong feelings about it being ours to do and not do what we decide we want to do and not do. But Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is God and supreme over your sexuality, your sex life. And he's not embarrassed about it. He created it. But he does call you to submit and allow him to reign over your sexuality. So let me ask if you're here and you're single. What would have to change in your life to demonstrate that Jesus reigns over your sexuality? So somebody you'd need to stop sleeping with, some things you need to stop doing. Oh, but we live in a day, everybody has sex before marriage. Shut your mouth. He's God. He's supreme. And he still says, I reign over your sexuality. Give it to me. I'm good. I'm not a killjoy. I'm good. I love you more than this world loves you and is lying to you, telling you, give it, open the door, kick down that sign. It's time to submit to King Jesus. He'll give you the grace. Oh, I could never stay sexually pure. Have you tried? As if that wasn't awkward enough, what about your money? Never mind bringing up sex on Sunday. Let's go money. That's very personal and powerful. And again, it's one of those where we think that's in a different category. That, that's not spiritual stuff. That's, and it's mine. Mine, my precious. <laughs> I worked hard for it. I earned it. I make decisions as to what to do and not do with it. But hold on a minute. Colossians 1.18 says, if Jesus is God and supreme, then he has authority over your money. And Jesus actually said, you can't serve God and money. Some of you keep trying to find a way and you think you're doing it effectively and you're not. He said you'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. And then he gives a very helpful insight. He says in Matthew 6, 21 and where your treasure is where your money's going there will your what be also? Say it. So let me ask you, where's your money been going? Because that's where your heart is. Is Jesus supreme over your money? What about your identity and sense of worth or success? Are you still tied to what the world says about body image being everything? Especially you young ladies. Oh, my heart goes out to you. What a brutal, brutal world. We live in a world where we know because of sin in Genesis 3, you are going to die. You are going to age. You are going to wrinkle. You will not stay looking the same. And so my heart breaks that we have a world They keep saying, but you've got to have a flat tummy. You've got to look young. You cannot have wrinkles. There cannot be crow's feet. You cannot lose hair. You're still tied to the world's body images, everything. That defines you ultimately. And you guys can be some body image things, but usually we get over like, whatever, I don't care. I'm still cool. So I'm a little fat, whatever. 
But with guys, lots of times it's your occupation stops being simply what I do to earn money and it is who I am. It defines me. And that's a brutal world. You're still living your life, defining yourself based on, based on that exhausting standard the world has. That it's the status of where I live and what I drive and what I wear and who I know and where I go. And as soon as you think you got it all right, it changes. No drive this, no wear this. You're wearing that, are you kidding me? This little shirt with plaid things, it's gonna be out in two years. It's just all gonna change. And it's exhausting. Or have you found the sweet rest of understanding my identity is who I am in Christ. He loves me. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm his daughter. I'm his son. He's my bridegroom. I'm asking you, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ showing up in every area of your life as it ought to, especially in those areas that tend to define us the most, like sexuality, money, and identity? Tim Keller says it this way and explains it, the problem this way. He says, you can't know the absolute if you absolutize anything else in this world, whether it's chocolate or sex or anything. You can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme. Maybe you're still thinking, but Brad, what do you mean you can't absolutize something else in this world, make something else supreme? Let me help you. Here's what I hear people say sometimes. Maybe you do too. Oh, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian. And I know in this area of my life, it's not right. But, but I have to do it. I can't live without it. And Jesus wouldn't expect me to. Let me me tell you what's going on with that lie. Here's what's going on when you talk that way. Basically, you are saying, I expect King Jesus with all dominion, power, authority, goodness, mercy, grace to graciously take a back seat in my life while I willfully, willfully ignore what he says about that and refuse to submit to his authority in that area In fact, saying, and I make no plans to submit there ever. It's not going to happen. Do you know what that kind of talk is? It is the language of supremacy that disregards the authority of Jesus as God. And the Bible has a word for it. Idolatry. Supremacy, authority, and idolatry run in the same circles. Whatever you begin to make supreme in your life other than what you should, is going to bump you up against the authority of God and you will be put in a position to either repent and submit or disregard his word. And when you disregard what he says, I need to help some of you here. Here's what's going on. It shows that that area is what you really live for and prize and treasure. And you make more of that than you do God. And it's idolatry. Anything... Or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God is idolatry. It could be a person. It could be a cause. It could be an idea. It could be a thought. It could be a car. It could be whatever. You think it through in your own life. Supremacy, authority, idolatry. Supremacy, authority, 
idolatry. See, Colossians chapter 1 makes it absolutely clear, folks, that Jesus didn't come into this world just to be some kind of spiritual guru or spiritual supplement or add-on in your life. Jesus is king. And so it's all or nothing. That's what the Christmas story means. All or nothing. Now, if that wasn't unsettling enough, I've just kicked over your eggnog and all kinds of happiness. Let me give you another unsettling thing to consider here. If you say that baby is God and you claim to be a Christian, you'll be willing to suffer, risk, and throw your best energies into living for what matters most. So where are you getting that, Brad? Well, it's Paul Heads towards the end of the chapter. Watch how he moves. Watch where he goes. Look in verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is the church. And look how he sticks the landing in verse 29. Look at verse 29 again. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. There are a lot of intense verbs there in that one verse. See, when, when you truly believe that Jesus is God and he's supreme and that what he did for you is worthy of you giving your best, you go hard. You don't, don't make a mistake here. Paul's not talking about, I strive and I labor to hopefully please God so that he'll love me and save me and take me to heaven. No, 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 no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus what? Nothing. Nothing. But when that's real to you and you've been born again and Jesus is reigning supreme, you'll work hard for him out of gratitude. That word labor that Paul uses is the word in the Greek, kapio, not ergo, the normal. Kapio, which means to labor to the point of exhaustion long after you wanted to quit. But the cause is so worthy. That word striving is the word in the Greek, agonizomai. What do you think we get in English from that? Agony. There's going to be some agony in your life. This whole your best life now, cush it, pat it, king's kids go first class. Shut up. The king himself didn't do that when he was here. He's going to. It's going to be good. When he came. And now we labor. We strive. There's some agony. And not in our own strength. With his might, which works in me mightily. You're not on your own. He'll give you everything you need to live this way. But there will be days that you are so tired, so discouraged, would love to quit. Don't want to start another conversation with a lost person. Don't want to host the small group. Don't want to leave the small group. Don't want to meet with the person you're counseling. Don't want to have a long conversation with your teenager that desperately needs to air something. You, you just, when you know who he is and what he's done and why we're here you will go past all those points where you just say, uh-uh. You won't want a safe, cozy, comfortable life. You'll want to spend your life in what matters most. You'll start living in ways that the world would actually call radical, even reckless. You stop being so guarded 
And you're willing to risk even suffer, knowing that your suffering could never compare to the suffering that Christ experienced for you. In stark contrast to most people around you, and sadly, even some Christians, security in this life will no longer consume you. Don't hear me saying don't have life insurance, health insurance. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying what, what consumes you? You'd be willing to say, enough is enough. I think I've, I've been wise, but now I want to give away more. I think I've, I'm taking care of my family, but I want to find a way to serve. You'll, you'll stop being consumed with earthly securities. And you'll be willing to risk. You say, Brad, good grief. How do we get to radical and reckless with the Christmas story? <laughs> it's one of the most calming, comforting, cozy little stories in all the Bible. You did not get that from the Bible, my friend. Our world has completely redefined Christmas into this cozy thing. It's the exact opposite of the original Christmas. The exact opposite. We've turned Christmas into one of the coziest times of year. With, with, you know, chestnuts roasting on the open fire and Jack Frost nip, 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 nipping at our little noses. In fact, it's a time that our lives are actually... Increased in comforts and pleasures with food and beverage and parties and music and lights and and the smells of nutmeg and pine and peppermint. There was none of that at the original Christmas. There, There were none of the smells and bells and lights that we have at Christmas. There was nothing, get this, there was nothing cozy about the stable. And nothing comforting about the mission for which he had come. When you're gripped by King Jesus, that he is God, and you understand the real meaning of Christmas, that he came to die and take a beating and give his life away and to be rejected and to lose reputation, you will never more again be satisfied with, oh, I'm just trying to reach my financial goals. Oh, I want to keep my figure after 50. Oh, I want to build the dream house of our dreams after the kids are all gone. All of that is tame, pedestrian, and pathetic. When you know who he is, what he's done, and what our world desperately needs, you will say, I don't want a safe, cozy, nice little life. Show me what part of your kingdom I could give my life away in. And I'll send my money in that direction. I'll give my gifts and energies in that direction. It changes everything. You start living for what matters most with your money, your time, your energies. See, here's what this means. If Jesus is God and he's supreme for you. And you understand the real meaning of Christmas and what he's done for you. If you're here and you're single... You just may stay single a lot longer than you would have if you'd not made Jesus supreme and you were not saying, I'm not going to bed down with every guy that wants to take me out for dinner after a couple of dates. I'm going to stay sexually pure even if I don't get anybody. I'm going to keep my Christian standards and live for what matters most. Even if I can't find a guy that seems godly or interested in Jesus, I will not compromise and that will be a loss but it'll also be just like your savior. Some of you are gonna make far less money in this world and in your career than you could have 
but you chose a profession and you stepped away from one that was sucking the very life out of you so that you could lead and love your family and so that you could actually have time to do ministry and serve in your local church. Or you weren't willing to cut corners and do what everyone's doing with the report system and whatever to climb the corporate ladder and it will be a loss. You will have to live on less, but it'll also be just like your Savior. Some of you may never gain the respect from your family and friends in this life because they think you have gone off the deep end with this whole Jesus thing and you are a nut. And that will be a loss and it will make for awkward holidays. But it will also be like your Savior. And some of us in this very room, folks, I think fairly soon, may be in prison, persecuted, Because we continue to believe everything and proclaim everything the Bible teaches. And it will be a loss for us and our families. But it will also be just like our Savior. When you believe that Jesus is God. You're willing to risk, suffer even. And throw your best energies into what matters most. Let me give you one more. One final way that Jesus being God reorders your life. If you believe that Jesus is God, you will be, oh, look at me as I say it. You'll be so done with empty religion. And you will not be able to get enough of a living, loving relationship with your Savior that comes through the gospel of grace. And dozens of you know what I'm talking about. He's so sweet. He's so good. I love him. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 5 and 6. Look at that again. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And look at this next phrase. Which has come to you. What is Paul talking about? This. The gospel took on flesh and blood and came. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. It's one thing to have the gospel presented to you. It's another thing for it to show up in flesh and blood. And that's what the apostle John was talking about in John 1.14 when he said, And the word became what? Flesh. And went where? And dwelt among us. Oh, wow. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of what? Grace and truth.